are getting back into the book of Exodus in this new year, in January now, and um, the real action is about to begin. Um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be thinking about the, the dramatic ten plagues that God, through Moses, inflicts on the nation of Egypt. All of the early chapters of Exodus, we've been thinking about them before Christmas, have been building up to this great moment. We've seen the brutality of successive tyrannical pharaohs. We've seen something of the sheer misery of God's people in slavery. And we've also been seeing something of God's preparation of Moses to be their great deliverer. And now we come to the great showdown. This is the moment. This is the moment. Now, I heard a few little whispers. We, we only read a very short passage today, didn't we? Um, Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. But it describes a scene in the court of Pharaoh, which I think serves as an introduction to all that we're going to look at over the next three weeks. This is an introduction to those 10 plagues. And in these, there's only six verses here, but in these verses, if this conflict were a boxing match, th this passage is like the weigh-in before the big fight. Um, I'm not trying to say anything by these characters. Some of you will know Tyson Fury. This was a weigh-in that he did during this past year. But this is very common, isn't it, in boxing matches? This, this passage here in Exodus is where the battle lines are being drawn. And we're going we're gonna to get a taster or a prelude or a preview of what's to come in the next two or three chapters. On one side, we have Moses and Aaron, two brothers. Although, uh, for simplicity, I'm saying Moses here because ultimately it's Moses who will come to the fore. God um, allowed Moses to take his brother to help him, but it's really Moses uh, who, who, who's the one who'll come to the fore here. And on the other side, if you like, we're Pharaoh, this mighty king of Egypt. Now, last week, um, we read in verse 7 that Moses, at this point, is 80 years old. And Aaron, his older brother, is 83. So it's hope, isn't there? It's hope for us all. And um, these two old guys go into the court of Pharaoh. So straight away, in this weigh-in, you, we, we can see this is immediately a terrible mismatch, isn't it, on the face of things. Two old guys against the most powerful man in the world. But I th the first thing to notice is that there's no actual mention in these six verses of what the conflict is actually about. Did you notice that? There's nothing in this scene about the slavery of God's people. There's nothing in this scene about Moses demanding that Pharaoh let them go. We'll get to that. Be assured, we'll get to that. But th this scene is more like two sides posturing. You get that idea? It really is like a way in. 
The, the, these, this is like a pre-fight show of strength here. And these verses, if anything, are inviting us to place our bets on who's going to win in this conflict. Who is the undisputed, true, and unrivaled king? That's what we're being invited to think about in this little introductory section. But this scene is a taster in other important ways too. I, I want us to see that there's a pattern here that is repeated in every single plague that will escalate over the next few chapters. And we might, we might say this, this conflict is not really between Pharaoh and Moses. This is a fight ultimately between Pharaoh and God. You get that? It is God himself who has come to set his people free. And it's God who has sent Moses to confront Pharaoh, this brutal king. So look with me. If you've got a Bible, it'd be really helpful. Uh, look with me at verse 8, because this scene begins with God taking the initiative and saying something. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron. The scene starts with God speaking. And the scene ends with Pharaoh being stubborn and resistant. Look down at verse 13. We'll, we'll get to what happens in this incredible little scene. But at the end, we're told, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them. Just as the Lord had said. In this introductory scene, God takes the initiative and Pharaoh resists. And we could go to the first plague. We could go to all of them if you like, but we'll go to the first one. I'll just show you. The exact same pattern happens in every single plague. Look at chapter 7 and verse 14. We didn't get that far. It begins with God speaking, taking the initiative. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. You see what's happening? God speaks. This is God at work. It begins with that. But then the scene ends with Pharaoh being continually stubborn and resistant. Look down at verse 22. The Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret art, arts and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. Now, you, we won't do it because we'll be here all day, but you can check every plague, every single one begins. God said something. And every single one ends with Pharaoh continually resisting. So this little introductory scene is, is setting the scene. This face-off at the beginning is a preview of the way things will go as the plagues unfold. This is a fight between God and Pharaoh. So we, we've identified the three main characters 
and we're just going to walk through this and we'll try and unpack it by considering each one of them in turn and let's begin with Moses and here's what I want to say about Moses Moses demonstrates here his new obedience so let's um, let's tease this out now up to this point if if you can remember from before Christmas Moses's life has been the story really of two failures twice he has tried to do things to free the Israelites but only succeeded in making his own people and the Egyptians angry with him after his first failure in chapter 2 as a younger man Moses ran away and if you recall he spent 40 years working as a shepherd then in the desert wilderness away from Egypt 40 years wondering what went wrong 40 years of lonely regret but God isn't finished with him you almost get the sense that Moses has almost come to accept that he's finished because he blew it we get that and I I, I say that because when Moses encounters God at the burning bush in chapter 3 it seems that his confidence has gone it's shot 40 years of mulling on his own failure has left him anxious and hesitant and when God tells him to go back to Egypt and confront Pharaoh Moses pleads with God please send someone else I can't do it in the end God talks him around and he does go but then in chapter 5 Moses fails again he somehow manages to do the right thing in the wrong way he doesn't seem to listen to God's directions properly it's almost as if he he behaves as if God doesn't quite know what he's doing and he needs to help God along and so Moses he does go but he he thinks that God somehow needs a hand and again he ends up slated by the Egyptians and rejected by the Israelites but this time there's progress because instead of running away you'll recall in chapter 6 Moses runs to God and Moses discovers hear this Moses discovers that God is kind to failures who run to him God is kind to failures who run to him and so rather than angrily dismissing Moses you only had one job Moses rather than criticizing him and crushing him God receives him warmly and he reassures Moses that God is still in control and he puts Moses back together again and he sends him back into battle what I'm building to is that there's a verse here in our passage that we could easily miss but it represents a huge turning point in Moses's life actually it comes twice we read it first last week actually in verse 7 or sorry verse 6 Moses and Aaron did what Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them could easily skip over that and miss that 
In this passage, it comes again in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, this is what Pharaoh will do and this is what I want you to do. Verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did what? They did just as the Lord commanded them. Up to this point in this narrative, Moses has argued with God every time God has asked him to do something. But here at last, at the age of 80 years old, he finally reaches the place where he understands that actually God knows what he's doing and that it might be better if he chose to do what God said and gladly submit to the will of God instead of trying to mix it with his own ideas. One writer commenting on this says that Moses here is a new and different person. Instead of his bouncy self-confidence, he now has the magisterial authority and quiet confidence of a man who now utterly trusts the word of God. Finally, Moses here has no other words than those that God taught him. He has no other acts than those God had commanded. And he has no position except that of a man sent by God. There's a lot for us to learn from God's dealings with Moses and where he gets to in this passage. But here's two things. First of all, I want you to grasp that with God, our past failures are not fatal. Isn't that encouraging? God is patient and he will forgive and transform us to be the people he sees that we can be. Even when we don't see it ourselves, our past failures are not fatal. Are you, are you living with it? Like Moses, 40 years in the wilderness. Thinking he's blown it. God is patient. But secondly, I want us to realise that God can and does and will do incredible things through his weak but obedient children. Moses has learned here that despite his previous failures and his sharp sense of inadequacy and anxiety, when he steps out in faith, and obeys God it turns out that God is right there with him supplying everything that he needs the point is it's it's not his strength that counts but his obedience that counts and so often in the Bible this is true isn't it God uses the weak to achieve incredible things and here Moses has reached a place in his life at the age of 80 where that lesson has finally dawned on him. I do love the fact that behind this big dramatic story, God is also simultaneously graciously forming and developing Moses. His character and preparing him to be a godly man and leader. As God goes to work on the big narrative of saving his people from slavery, 
He's also at work in beautiful ways to shape Moses. And this turning point here shapes not just the plagues that we'll look at over the next few weeks, but the whole book of Exodus. God has patiently prepared this reluctant man who has failed twice to be a great leader. What, what an encouragement that is to us. Well, let's turn next to think about what God is doing in this scene. And we'll, we'll spend most of our time on this and then we'll think about Pharaoh. If Moses demonstrates his newfound obedience, what God is doing in this scene is demonstrating his total supremacy. Do you remember back in chapter 5? It's, it's right at the beginning of verse 2 when Moses first stood before Pharaoh. And Moses said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says Let my people go. And Pharaoh kind of slaps him in the face. Pharaoh responds by saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let them go. It's a key verse in Exodus. I do not know the Lord and I will not let them go. Moses, I'm the king here and I've never heard of your so-called God. Get out. Well, this scene is the, is the place where God begins to show Pharaoh who he is so that he will know him and he'll never again say, I do not know the Lord. Now, we've already noted, haven't we, that God's supremacy is seen in the fact that it's God who takes the initiative. All the way through this narrative, God is the prime mover. We mustn't miss the fact that everything that happens does so because God is the one at work. He's directing things. God is the one working out his plans. But we can also see God's supremacy here in the fact that he also knows what's going to happen before it does so. Just look again at what God says to Moses and Aaron in verse 9. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, this is what I want you to do. It's before Moses and Aaron even go to Pharaoh, God tells them what Pharaoh's going to ask them for before he even opens his mouth. God is never taken by surprise. He isn't at the mercy of events here. God isn't here working out a plan B because somebody's messed up his plans. This God demonstrates his supremacy in that he is the one who takes the initiative and he knows beforehand the, the end from the beginning. And all of that points to God being the true king. But the real demonstration of God's supremacy here is this business with the staffs and the snakes. And we need to, we need to think about this, don't we? I don't think we can overstate how brilliant this is. Um, so let, let's try and unpack this. First of all, although Pharaoh is the one asking for a sign here or a miracle... I think we all realise by now, don't we, that he's not a man that's open to persuasion. 
he's not asking for a sign honestly because he wants to believe and wants to acknowledge God this this is what we might call a sneering defiant request this is Pharaoh saying do your best old man (laughs) show us what you've got with the assumption that what they've got is not very much I don't think this is Pharaoh wanting to see something. This is Pharaoh wanting to expose them as the two old men that they are. Show us a sign. Give us a sign. And we we should pause and just reflect on this. This can be the stance, can't it, of lots of people who are not believers. And I, I think maybe the thinking goes something like this. I'm not a bad person. It's not my fault that I don't believe. It's actually God's fault for not making himself clearer. And if God had made himself clearer, of course I'd believe. If only God would show me some kind of sign, of course I'll believe. I'm a reasonable person. You know that people said exactly this to Jesus. And some of them saw Jesus with their own eyes do tremendous miracles and then they went out and plotted to kill him the issue for them was not the evidence the issue wasn't intellectual it was a moral issue the challenge was that they refused to acknowledge his true lordship And so here, the same thing's happening. Pharaoh's underlying posture here is not a sincere one, but a hostile one. Give us a sign, old man, and then we can get rid of you. But strangely enough, even in his unbelief, Pharaoh, I think here, asks more than he realizes. And here's the thing. Miracles are actually quite rare, Even in biblical history, there are periods where there are lots of miracles and there are centuries where there are none. It seems that God doesn't do random magic tricks to show off. The principle seems to be that when God does display his miraculous power, he does so in order to authenticate the truth of his word. It seems in the Bible even that miracles seem to occur when God is revealing something new about his ways, about his character. And I think this helps us to understand too that Jesus himself did miracles in the Gospels. He wasn't just showing off doing party tricks. When Jesus does miracles, they're designed to prove that he is who he claimed to be. And therefore, that his word is utterly trustworthy. And the important thing was not to be dazzled by the miracles, but to hear and believe and obey the words that he taught. I think in a way, Pharaoh understands this principle without even knowing that he understands it. He's saying to Moses, show me on what basis I should listen to you. That's his challenge. But what God then tells Moses to do is very significant 
and I, and I, I hope we'll see that it's very appropriate. Let me first show you a picture here. This, this is probably a familiar picture to, to us. This is a picture of a pharaoh's mask. Um, I think Tutankhamun has a similar one. I, I should have written down whose this was. But anyway, you, you, you've seen things like this. What, what do you see here in this picture? Well, this king, first of all, holds a couple of rods or staffs. That's significant. Many kings do this. A rod or a staff. And in our modern, we, we had a coronation this year, and there's a scepter. It's the traditional symbol of royal authority, isn't it? Staff. One of them is like a shepherd's crook, actually, and shepherd-like king. But it, it's a symbol of royal authority. But then do you notice what's on the head? Is a diadem or a crown that's embellished with a snake, I should have magnified it. Can you see that? So here's here's a pharaoh holding a rod with a, with a kind of snake-like crown on on his head. It's something like a cobra, sort of wide. Um, so snakes are very significant in Egypt. People feared them as terrifying, and yet at the same time they were also drawn to worship them. We, we've, some of you know, we visited, Jane and I visited Egypt and we went in this, earlier this year to the Valley of the Kings and, um, and we saw tombs of great pharaohs. I've, I've got a picture on my phone of this. I should have put it on there. And one of them, there was a long corridor tunnel going down to where the tomb was. And all the way down the corridor... There's paintings of like the Egyptian beliefs about the afterlife. And so there's a boat there and the pharaoh sailing to the afterlife in a boat. And then in front of the boat, there's like about a dozen snakes all like standing up with their heads pointed up. And I said to the guide, what's the significance of the snakes? And he said, well, these ancient Egyptians believed that the snakes were there to protect them as they traveled to the afterlife they, they, they really believed that these serpents would protect, protect them as they travelled or sailed on their afterlife boat. So th this is very relevant. The, the, this fear of and respect for snakes also conveys something of how pharaohs, and I think possibly all earthly kings, wish to rule. Pharaohs longed to be both feared and worshipped. Like, like, it, like the Egyptians felt about snakes. It's not hard to imagine why a pharaoh would have a fierce cobra on the front of their crown. It was all designed to intimidate their subjects with their awesome power and evoke respect and fear. One writer I came across this is incredible, points out that when a pharaoh first ascended the throne, coronation ceremony, the, the pharaoh would take the crown and would repeat these words. And they're, they're so important, these. I'll put them on the screen here. This is what a pharaoh would repeat. Oh, great one. Oh, magician. Oh, fiery snake. Let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. 
Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule, a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. It almost sounds like a prayer, doesn't it? Many, may people be afraid of me like they're afraid of poisonous snakes. I want people to cower. <laughs> I want people to respect me and obey me. Now, it's surely no accident that in the Bible, the great prince of the powers of darkness is described as what? That ancient serpent. The devil, Satan himself, it's almost here as if the pharaohs are praying to this devilish serpent, make me like you so that people will fear and submit to me. Now, what I'm... We're not just having a history lecture here. Why do I say all of this? I, I, hopefully we can see that what God tells Moses and Aaron to do is super significant. This is not just a random thing. To take a rod that is the symbol of Pharaoh's royal authority and throw it on the floor and see it turn into what? A scary snake. It's more than just an authentic, an authenticating sign. This is a strike at the heart of Pharaoh's kingly power. Aaron takes the symbols of authority and chucks them in the dirt in Pharaoh's court. I was trying to think what we can compare this to, and I, I, the best I could come up with was it's like walking into Downing Street and challenging the prime minister and like flipping his desk over on the floor or even better you know the symbol of the president in the united states is like a bald eagle it's as if you walk into the oval office and confront the american president and wring the neck of a bald eagle in his face and then chuck it there what are you going to do about that this this is a this is a challenge you get that Moses and Aaron are saying, you, Pharaoh, are not really the true king. The staff and snake thing was already mentioned actually in chapter 4. And the staff will appear again later on in chapter 7 and throughout the plagues. But it's really interesting that the author here uses a different word for snake than those two passages. It's a stronger word. It's a word that in other parts of the Bible is translated as monster. And in this particular passage, the word for snake is designed to underline something dangerous and monstrous. This was a slightly terrifying reptilian creature. And I think it's intended to be a picture of Pharaoh as the serpent-like monster tyrant king. Now... We need to rattle on. Pharaoh's initial response is to call in his big guns. <laughs> I'm not having this, he thinks. And in verse 11, Pharaoh summons his very best. Look at it. He summons the wise men, his sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians. And they did the same thing. They, threw, they throw their staffs on the floor and they become snakes. This is interesting, isn't it? And surprising. 
if this is meant to be an authenticating sign and God knows beforehand what will happen, could God have not given them something more impressive that they couldn't replicate? It seems strange, doesn't it? It doesn't seem very convincing if Pharaoh's court can do the same thing. What are we to make of that? The, the text certainly seems clear that what Aaron did is straightforwardly a miracle that was only possible by God's power. So let, let's say straight away that Aaron's not, Aaron is not going into Pharaoh's palace with a magic trick up his sleeve. You, you understand that, don't you? God tells them to do this, and what they do is a divine miracle. But the question then is, how do the Egyptians replicate it? Answers on a postcard. How do the... Well, there's a, commentators are divided on this, and there's a few different theories that have been suggested. Here's, here's some of them. First of all, we do know that there were magicians in Egypt. They're mentioned here in verse 11. Apparently, the Egyptians were fascinated with magic tricks. There's a story of one priest making a crocodile out of wax and throwing it into the lake where it swims away as a, as a real-life crocodile. And that's what we would call you know, clever illusion. It's a sleight of hand that you would see in a modern day magic show. You, you kind of know it's not real, but it, you know, it, it, after all, Aaron did this immediately. And when Pharaoh calls for his magicians, there's, there's possibly a sense that they had time to quickly prepare some trick or illusion. Another suggestion is that these guys were snake charmers. There's a long history of this too in Egypt. I didn't know this, but apparently, if you know, you if you, if you if you know the right place to press in a snake's neck, you you can paralyze it, and it goes rigid. And um, and th and then when you throw it on the floor, the snake is shocked out of its comatose state and appears to come back to life. Maybe these guys were expert snake charmers. But the third possibility is that they did this by some dark supernatural power and there is a hint of this in verse 11 at the end there it does the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts there's a mention here of sorcerers and the Bible does make clear that there are real evil forces of darkness in the spiritual realm the Bible also warns us to steer well clear of this kind of thing, the occult and sorcery. Verse 11 mentions sorcerers, as we've said. Sorcery is often an attempt to look into the future, but sometimes sorcery is an attempt to change the future. Casting spells trying to cause things to happen and some of that will be trickery and illusion but some of it will be real demonic spiritual power at work and let me reiterate that occultic practices of this kind of nature are dangerous and totally forbidden in the bible this text doesn't make clear whether this was a magic trick or some darker power at work. 
But I think a few things are clear. Um, first of all, it's, it's good just to highlight that even if real demonic powers are at work here in the Egyptian court, isn't it striking that the best they could do was to replicate what God did? And I, I, I just want to throw out there that this is how it always is with evil. The powers of darkness are real, but they can't create things like God can. Satan is not an innovator, but a corrupter. And it's interesting, isn't it? The evil powers, they, they can't come up even with ideas of their own. They, they, it, one, one writer describes the devil as the annoying little brother who's always trying to copy his older brother. You know, it, it's not really, he, he just wants to be him. And this is the thing with the evil. It, the, the devil in the Bible is described as a liar and a deceiver who can only ever make counterfeit stuff rather than the real thing. And isn't it true that we can see this principle at play in our world? As people replace the true God and instead try to assert something else in his place, Pharaoh in his court is like, that's impressive, Aaron. My guys can do that. And isn't that the way some people, I, I don't need God. I can do what you say God does, but I'll do it in my own way. It's a replication. It's a counterfeit. It isn't the real deal. But there's something here going on in Pharaoh's court of that. But the unmistakable point that's being made, there's humour here, as all these scary snakes are slithering around in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's thinking, whatever you can do, old man, my top team can do better. He doesn't need any excuse here to dismiss Moses and Aaron. You can smell his sneering pride until the twist that is Aaron's snake easily gobbling up all the others. However they managed to copy what Aaron had done, they couldn't prevent his snake from eating theirs. And don't miss the fact as well, it's a bit strange. In verse 12, it, it's a bit weird in verse 12 because it says that Aaron's staff swallows their staffs. I, that's quite striking. The staff becomes a snake, eats all the other snakes, and then becomes a staff again. It's an unforgettable scene. And surely the primary point of it is that God is demonstrating his supremacy. This battle is not a battle with an uncertain outcome. Pharaoh is not a match for God. His court can copy some things, but the whole host of evil will actually never be a match for God's power. And there's no need for us to be superstitious about evil powers as if they might win by their cunning. This is not an arm wrestle. God alone is king. And that's what's being demonstrated here in this introductory scene. Aaron's snake here isn't just destroying their power, but eating it. 
Aaron's snake consumes their snakes and it's almost as if to show that even their pretended authority actually really ultimately belongs to God. The unmistakable lesson here is that God has no rival. Moses and Aaron might look like two old guys challenging an almighty king who could crush them in a moment. Pharaoh can try and copy stuff for a bit, but for all his show of strength, Pharaoh is not God. His crown has a scary snake on it. He looks fierce, but he's not ultimate. So God is taking initiative here. Nothing takes him by surprise. His analysis of Pharaoh and God's challenge to him hits the bullseye with pinpoint accuracy. And in the end, God will be seen to have no rival. This scene is a brilliant taster or preview of what is to come in the next two or three chapters and beyond. Later on, actually, in chapter 14, Pharaoh's whole army will be swallowed up too. Not by snakes, but by the sea. And in chapter 15, the stunned and joyful Israelites will sing their hearts out. You stretched out your hand, O Lord, and the earth swallowed them. It's the same word. The point being made here in this early little face-off is that God will win. This contest will be God's mighty hand against Pharaoh's serpent-like heart. And the outcome is not unsure. All the way through the plagues, God will build on this scene to demonstrate his total supremacy in every, in every and every in any realm God will choose the time and the place and the timing and the type and the extent of every plague and despite being the king of Egypt Pharaoh will not be able to stop a single one of God's plans and even his own magicians by plague number three even his own magicians go to Pharaoh and say mate this is the finger of God we can't do it and by the seventh plague, Pharaoh's own officials start taking precautions. When God warns Pharaoh through Moses, the officials are listening and they go off and start taking precautions because they know what's coming. This scene truly sets the scene. What happens here is how it will go. This weighing is a preview of the one-sided fight to come. Lastly, let's just think more briefly about Pharaoh. Pharaoh demonstrates his stubborn defiance. The, that, that's the last thing the author notes here. Pharaoh asks for a sign and then totally ignores it. It seems like none, none of this impresses him. Even though he sees Aaron's rod swallow up all the others, he still refuses 
to listen. I think this taster scene is almost like a little thing that God confronts Pharaoh with before any of the big stuff even starts. But the reality is that from the very beginning, Pharaoh has no desire whatsoever to submit to God. It's almost like there's a inbuilt prejudice there. Even when he sees things with his own eyes, he's like, no, I'm not having that. What should happen is that Pharaoh should climb down from his throne and take off his snake-like crown and fall down in worship of the true and living God. But he's already made up his mind and his heart is hard and not even a demonstration of God's great power will convince him to change his mind. We're going to think more about Pharaoh in the weeks to come. But when it says here that Pharaoh's heart became hard, it, it literally means that his heart became strengthened. It, we, we might say that his determination grew. His heart was like stone. It had no softness or sensitivity or receptivity to God. He's trained himself to be so resistant that he, he now can't see what's right in front of his eyes or respond rightly to it his heart is heavy and hard and slow to grasp the truth it's as if he's become dull and blind in his determination and we said earlier his, his problem wasn't intellectual it's moral it's not a lack of evidence it's just stubborn defiance and what a warning Pharaoh is to us to witness the power of God right in front of your own eyes and refuse to acknowledge him is a terrifying thing, isn't it? But again, this scene is a taster of all that is to come. This is how the whole plague narrative plays out. Again and again, God will speak Pharaoh will see God's power and have no answer and yet still irrationally refuse to acknowledge that the Lord God alone is God. Well, how, how, how are we going to approach the plagues then? I, what I wanted to do as we close is just give you a clue where we're going. This, this is like a little introduction. We... Let me draw these three threads of this scene together so that we can keep this in mind and unpack the plagues over this next month or so. Um, the first thing to say in the book of Exodus is, is this. God, God is revealing his character and nature ultimately to the world. And what we've seen in this introduction passage is God taking the initiative and demonstrating his total supremacy, that he alone is Lord and King. But this raises a question, doesn't it, about how, how does God use his divine power? He, he is the king, but what kind of a king is he? 
And I think here we've seen today that God demonstrates his power in two totally different ways. On one side, we see God's power being expressed in his grace and faithfulness. His undeserved kindness towards Moses, who becomes a new man by God's grace and later towards his beloved people who who he's going to rescue from slavery. God's power is exercised in blessing and rescuing and saving and being gracious to his people. But on the other side, we see God's power being expressed in a different way, in judgment, on Pharaoh who continues in his stubborn defiance and who ends up being totally and utterly defeated. You see those two, God's God's supremacy is being revealed both in salvation and grace and in judgment. It it evokes two different human reactions. Moses responds humbly to God's word, whereas Pharaoh is determined to resist God's word. Now, we've already seen in the build-up to this before Christmas, if you can remember that far, that God's intention was both that his people and the Egyptians, his enemies, would know him. So if you've got your Bible open, just go to verse 7 of chapter 6. It's on the same page there. This is what God says to Moses. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Why? Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. This is what I will do for you and then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And then just go to verse 5 of chapter 7 God tells Moses what he will do to his people's enemies he says I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions my people the Israelites why and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Do you see, in the end, everyone will ultimately know that God alone is the true Lord. One group will submit to this gladly and rejoice in it, and the other will discover it by finding out the hard way. But in the end, they will both know God's friends and his enemies. One group will joyfully experience God's grace and salvation and the other will ultimately face his judgment. As I was preparing this week, there's a verse that came to mind. I think it sums up this so well and it'll appear on the screen. This verse actually comes from Proverbs chapter 3 but it's important and it's quoted twice in the New Testament by both Peter and James and it simply says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I I think you could hang that verse over the book of Exodus. God is good in saving his people. They, They didn't deserve it. This is his grace. But he also is good in 
justly punishing his enemies. And that means, sadly, Pharaoh here, when he proudly refuses to acknowledge the power of God, he completely misses the grace of God. So, here's what we're going to do. We, we, we've been wondering as a team how, how we're going to approach these plagues. We could take them one by one and take like 10 weeks to work through them one at a time. But if the big picture here is God revealing what he's like, it would be better for us to, to draw out the big themes. So this is what we're going to do. Um, rather than work through the plagues in detail, we're going to spend the next three weeks looking at them as a whole. And we're going to think about how these three chapters reveal three Ps. God, we'll think first next week about how the plagues reveal God's power. And then the week after, we'll think about how these plagues as a whole reveal God's patience. And then finally, we'll think about how these plagues as a whole reveal God's passions. So that's where we're going to go over the next three weeks. God's power, God's patience, God's passion. And more about, more about that at the end. Um, we, we've recorded the plague reading, so Ian Fant, I'll tell you about that at the end. Um, I'm praying that over these next three weeks that we'll see wonderful things about God that will encourage our hearts and cause us to trust him and love him more. The battle lines are drawn here. This little section is the shape of things to come. And I want to close by saying this. It's also, this foundational story in Exodus is also the shape of the Christian gospel or good news. God's power and patience and passion are even more clearly revealed, supremely revealed in Jesus who comes into the world to save a people for himself and who will one day return to judge his enemies. And how does Jesus wield his mighty power? Well, for one thing, Jesus didn't come wearing a serpent crown or diadem to frighten and intimidate his subjects. But this king instead put his glory to one side and went to the cross wearing a crown of thorns in order to pursue his people. Friends, we don't need special signs now to authenticate Jesus and his word because God has now given us the greatest sign he could give. Jesus powerfully demonstrated his credentials by rising from the dead. This world resisted and rejected and crucified Jesus. But God, his father, has totally vindicated him by raising him from the dead and exalting him to the highest place and so while serpent-like kings exploit their subjects the risen and exalted king jesus cheerfully and lovingly holds out his nail-pierced hands to a lost world inviting rebels everywhere to come to him to run to him and to trust him for the salvation that he alone freely offers 
and to acknowledge him as their true and beautiful Lord and King. God has appointed his son Jesus to be both the gracious saviour and the universal judge. And it's ultimately through Jesus that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Let me urge you not to resist him, but to call upon him. And like Moses, to run to him and to trust him and to know his grace and salvation. Let's pray, shall we? And then we are going to sing a final song. <coughs> Father, we, we want to thank you for your precious, insightful and powerful word. And these passages are rich and there's lots of history and yeah, things for us to get our heads around here. But we thank you that you are a God who opposes the proud and who gives grace to the humble. We thank you that the Lord Jesus does not wear a serpent crown, but once wore a crown of thorns. We thank you for the fact that he is a humble king who laid down his life for sinful rebels like us. And we thank you that he rose and ascended and has been exalted to your right hand. Father, we pray that you would help us to see these eternal gospel truths embedded in this wonderful narrative in Exodus and help us not just to see it but to respond to it may we bow in humble adoration and call upon him the Lord Jesus our saviour we pray in his glorious name Amen <laughs>